Hello and welcome to The Right Idea, where we discuss the people, politics, and policies that drive Texas. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. I'm the Chief Communications Officer here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And as always, my co-host, Derek Cohen. He's our Vice President of Policy at TPPF. Derek, how's everything going? Not bad at all. Looking forward to discussing policies with you. Policies. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. I have to get that right. Um, you know, the big question right now is, have you, have you, I mean, all the conservatives, it's all the rage on social media right now. Have you recorded your anti-Bud Light video yet? Uh, I have not, but only because if I to understand how these things are supposed to go, I need to go make a awfully large purchase of Bud Light. Okay. And okay. then, you know, shoot them up with a, you know, or, <laughs> you know, throw them off of a, a building or, or something. I, don't, I, I, never really under, I never really understood the 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 idea to boycott something that you weren't going to buy anyway by having to buy it in the first place. See, that's my yeah. problem is that I've been boycotting Bud Light for about twenty five years, <laughs> so um, so I don't know. You, you were know, doing it before it was cool. Yeah, way but way before it was cool. Anyway. I'm actually I'm actually going to have to push back on that because the numbers mm-hmm. don't work out. That would have put you right about the you know the early twenties. Mm-hmm. I'm going to call nonsense that you were bo- uh, boycotting. Bud well, Light that's for that actually because I couldn't afford Bud Light <laughs> when I was you know when I first started out. A natty all, guy, I see. Exactly, natty Keystone. <laughs> um, or wherever I can get a free beer, actually, probably is more, more closer to it. Anyway, if you don't know what we're talking about, just go out on the internet and look up Bud Light. You'll see uh, see for yourself. All right, well, getting back to, again, the, the actual the people, policies, <laughs> and politics that do matter uh, in Texas. Um, but first, a little bit of, um, a little bit of uh, housekeeping. Um, we definitely want to hear from you. Uh, we love getting your feedback. We love getting your story ideas and subjects and things that you guys want to talk about. And so you can catch us on uh, on social media, on Twitter specifically. I'm at RealBeefy. Phil uh, on Twitter and Derek is at uh, Derek uh Cohen at TPPF. I always forget that one. So Cohen at TPPF uh, on Twitter. Uh, you know, give us your feedback. Give us your constructive criticism. Give us your show ideas, topics, things you want to hear about. Uh, we are happy to oblige there. Also, a couple other products that we love that we're putting out that we want to make sure that you know you're connected with all of the different things that we're doing here at TPPF and commenting on, particularly right now because there's so much going on mm. uh, in session. Uh, our newsletter, our, our, our weekly newsletter that we put out, you can find it at TexasPolicy.com/slash/thePost. The Post is what that's called and it's just sort of a comprehensive look at everything that's going on uh, that TPBF is putting out um, but also especially right now we started a video series at the beginning of session that we called The Layout and it allowed members to come in and talk for five to seven maybe sometimes ten minutes about specifically about their bills uh, we have now have almost twenty of those that are done and some of the biggest bills in fact some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about today mm-hmm. um, we had the members come in and do their five to seven minute talks about them so those are really easy you know if you want to get up to speed on kind of what those bills are, um, that's a really good place uh, for you to do that. Again, that's on our YouTube channel. It's just just search TPPF YouTube, um, and it's got its own playlist. It's got all of them uh, right there. That's the, Again, that's called The Layout. So go and check that out. All right. So as always, we want to get right into the Ledgeland alert, mm-hmm. Ledgeland updates mm-hmm. uh, from Derek and kind of what's going on uh, under the dome. What are the top issues in your mind? Well, I mean, you need to look no further than what happened immediately after we recorded last Thursday. Remember, you know, we we talked about anticipation of the floor uh, battle for the budget. Uh, we talked about the uh, DEI uh, push in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just, wow, I think I, we can look back and say that Thursday was quite a <laughs> quite a busy day. Um, we saw a lot of, uh, we did see a lot of contention on the floor, uh, not only about the uh, the parental empowerment amendment uh, that we saw that unfortunately uh, attached, even though, I mean, you know, as well as I do, much like in every year past, it's going to get stripped off. Mm-hmm. And it was a largely performative vote, um, one of which we, I believe we called the politics of which in the question uh, last time. 
Uh, so we saw that. We saw the battle on the floor over the DEI amendment. We'll get talking a little bit more about yep. that later on. And, uh, yeah, over in the Senate, I mean, how surprised was I when I turned it on and it was like, oh, goodness, it was probably 8, 9 o'clock at night. And then the, one of the first witnesses to sit down was uh, Dr. Ben Carson in support mm-hmm. of the bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really, I think it was really illustrative to kind of see the the, the approach that people like Dr. Carson and, uh, and other folks in support of, of that measure took versus kind of the... Uh, screed of the undifferentiated left-wing blob, we'll say. So budget was a huge issue uh, last week. The one I want to get to right off the top, um, get your, your comments and thoughts on, obviously, you know, again, as I always say, this is TPBF, so every seven minutes we have to talk about school choice. Down from nine minutes, if I recall. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the Senate had their hearings, and they passed uh, SB8. Um, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's not a perfect bill, as we said, but it's a pretty good bill, and it actually would be the largest school choice bill um, in their, their education savings account. So the largest education savings account in the country, uh, which would affect over five and a half million kids um, uh, if it were to pass. Now it's moved over to the House where everybody expected that that would be where the real, you know, the real debate, the real controversy or or, you know, the, the real back and forth would go. Uh, this Tuesday, so a couple days ago, mm-hmm. uh, the House Public Education Committee had their hearing on it. Um, and so I, I always like to point out that that's the first time that House Pub Ed has had a hearing, a substantive hearing on school choice in 10 years. So even though um, um, so even though you know nothing was voted out, just having the hearing itself mm-hmm. was it was a big milestone. Uh, you watched that hearing. Mm-hmm. You 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 know went back back and forth with a lot of folks and, and certainly talked to all of our analysts here and, and the coalition. And um, and uh, um, you know around the state that's putting this together and in support of it. So, what was your takeaway from that committee hearing? Uh, I was I was very impressed. I mean, first and foremost, I have to give uh, the utmost credit to uh, Chairman Buckley, who was able to keep that um, that particular uh, train running on time because mm-hmm. that is. You know, with a co- when a topic is you know contentious, and I mean, you needn't look farther than the registration page or the registration rules. You know, when uh, interested groups were uh, providing uh, all sorts of witnesses with transportation there, um, that you know, people there are a lot of people that were good uh, that were in favor, of it, a lot of people that were not in favor. Of it. But one thing I wanted to, uh, I want to illustrate, and, and again, you mentioned SB eight, and and on Tuesday. No analog of SB8 was heard. These are all specifically the education savings account bills, all the ones that provide that kind of funding mechanism for parental empowerment as opposed to uh, the parental bill of rights and things like that that we saw in in SBA. Mm-hmm. But all that being said is obviously you had contributions, The one of the largest being uh, that from uh, Chairman Frank. And what you saw is when it was laid out and when the public got to start weighing in on this, you saw parents and, you know, those people who really want to see the best for their children overwhelmingly take the side of, of, of those particular bills. And it was interesting, and what I really noted is that on the other side, you know, the people that were um, speaking against it, obviously, you know, look, of course, the superintendents who make three hundred fifty grand a year are going to come out. You know, you remember that scene from... Uh, Blazing Saddles, where they said, oh, they're going to come for our phony baloney jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, but they don't even bother using the language of this is for the, you know, we need to maintain the status quo for the children because there's absolutely not a single leg to stand on with that. Mm-hmm. That being said is obviously the focus is on, on education outcomes 
on diversity, on getting people the most mobility within the education system. Those people were all for maintaining the status quo, talking about school systems as what need to be preserved uh, in and of themselves, you know, talking about, again, just kind of the institutional inertia. Those were all the folks on mm-hmm. uh, that were usually against the bill. Because, I mean, those talking points are getting pretty stale at this point. Well, and that's what I was going to kind of jump into is that, you know, there's not even really the, the pretense that it's for the kids anymore. I mean, it really is just about the money. I mean, it seems like because this effort is so real this time and that the, you know, the, the, um, the potential for Texas to follow, you know, State after state after state that keeps um, uh, voting for for new school choice programs. But I think mm-hmm. today we just had uh, North Dakota mm-hmm. voted uh, for for school choice. A few weeks ago we had Arkansas that voted for school choice, and that's on top of already the twenty something states that already had choice programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so now you've got this like tremendous momentum because there is that kind of momentum and that sense that you know things are different this time around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that fear is coming out uh, in some of the, the you know the establishment educrats mm-hmm. that. That in fact, um, you know, this this bill is going to pass, and so they are very very worried about the the prospect of actually having to yeah. to create you know a, a product or a service then cater to the people that they're actually supposed to be serving. And if they don't, the money will then go to someone else who mm-hmm. will you know who will uh, provide a better education for them. So so it's not even really about the kids anymore. They're just flat out making the argument: you can't take away the money because we say you can't take away right. the money. And I'll even look. I'll, I will. What, what what is the opposite uh, rhetorically of a straw man? A, a <laughs> iron, an Iron Man? There <laughs> you go. Iron Man, concrete. Um, exactly. So I'll I'll even give him their due if they say, look, compromising a predictable you know line of of revenue into the system might compromise their ability to deliver on mandated service such as special education and things like that. Mm-hmm. I will give them that. But then, and here's the necessary cap: they never go to step two on that. They never say, okay, well, we're you know. If that is the case, then somebody's providing that supplemental, um, that supplemental element for special ed or for any sort of special needs or for any, you know, maybe even just you know normal, maybe emotional needs that might be covered under this particular plan. These are what this is going to open it up to. And like, if this is the only game in town, in several places it is, I will give them that that it's the only game in town. Oh, the, the 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 public school user base as it is isn't going to mm-hmm. disappear tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But what we see and what we've seen in states that have happened uh, where this has happened, especially states where they have a very broad application of say an ESA, is that the, the kids who need that supplemental instruction get that somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Still still attend the school. The kids who need. Uh, some sort of, you know, kind of unique situation, whether it's uh, voc ed or anything mm-hmm. uh, in that regard, get that somewhere else. And then still, you know, actually do the, the academic instruction at the school. And it just turns out they never go to that next step and say, you know, everyone's going to leave. And, because, you know, I mean, some the, the question that begs is why? Right. But it's and all, they never answer that question. Yeah, but like also it's like, but then the case is if that money is not available and the service is not being provided, then that kid who has whatever that special need might be then will not be taken mm-hmm. care of. And so that's the way it would be under the status quo. So in addition to, you know, just just making the case that it's all about the money, um, the other thing about, I thought about the opposition is that sometimes they, some of their folks that stand up there say the quiet part out loud. The mask slips a little? Yeah, the mask <laughs> slips a little bit. And, and, it, and I think it exposed, I think, for uh, people who maybe weren't paying attention 
attention to this issue a couple of years ago that part of the motivation for parents to get involved this time and to really start this movement is the fact that when they had issues with what was going on at schools, whether it's the materials or the the lessons or what what have you, or you're just not you're just not satisfied with the education your child's getting, when they would engage with with uh, principals and teachers, uh, they were not getting the response that they had expected to get. They were mm-hmm. not getting a willing partner, um, you know, a willful partner in trying to help educate their child. And that's on display, too, as well. There were several uh, individuals that stood up there and said some very demeaning, uh, very offensive things. I think you and I are thinking of the same one right now. About parents. Well, there was one. There were several, but there was one in potential, uh, uh, one in particular that, that was highlighted. You know, somebody who gets up there and says, you know, look, you know, I like parents and all, but some of them are drug addicts, you know, <laughs> and they just can't be trusted to make decisions, you know, take care of themselves, much less other kids, which... You know, I mean, there's so many, so many awful things to say about that. One is, you know, because there are bad parents, so every single parent, you know, that's not wealthy can send their kids wherever they want to or move where they want to. So because there are some other parents, every other parent shouldn't get, shouldn't get choice. You know, that's the, the number one thing. But then, you know, how many awful teachers are, are getting arrested for doing awful, inappropriate things at schools? What does that mean? Or you know, superintendents. Or super, yeah, yeah, you know, throughout the education industry. So then we should, you know, every single teacher and every single principal should then get a, a bad rap as well. Anyway, th- the point is, is that there is clearly, you know, right under the surface for a lot of uh, for a lot of folks in that industry, um, you know, a. Um uh, you know, a, a, a poor opinion of parents and, mm-hmm. and feeling like, you know, they're the experts and they're the ones who should ultimately make all of the decisions rather than these, you know, ignorant, uh, drug addicted parents who don't know anything about education and can't take care of their own kids. Yeah. And I mean, obviously you, you said demeaning and that's, I think, is the, the best way of, of putting it. But I think it's a it's a it's an effort of, of class minimization. You know, you don't want I mean, they. They're the idea, the, the, the framework that they have erected to defend the public school system for the sake of the public school system alone. And again, mm-hmm. this is not a screed against the public school system because many, I would argue most in the state of Texas are actually really good. Um, that being said is in order for that framework to hold – they would need to basically be the buttress against the unwashed masses who would take their kids and put them in some, you know, New Gilead, uh, you know, Christian Academy or, or something, something like that. And it's just, it's just not that way. Mm-hmm. The parents and the funny thing is you've seen this all across the nation, places that have done this. The parents that are most likely to take advantage of any sort of flexibility in, like, say, an ESA program are the ones who are already hyper plugged in. Mm-hmm. As it is. Yeah, there there are going to be bad parents out there. There are going to be parents that take their kids and, you know, probably make a uh, make a determination on their educational future that might be deleterious to that kid. But again, as the parent, that is what they have the right to do. Mm-hmm. We've seen, you know, the track, you know, track record going back decades that that is the, you know, an infinitesimally small minority of the cases. Mm-hmm. And to say that, well, since that exists maybe once or twice, then, you know, no school choice for anyone. It's just it's it's a 
that mm-hmm. right there is a straw man. So, uh, so let's get to brass tacks then. I mean, there was no vote uh, at the time, uh, and I'm sure they'll you know probably schedule one uh, for next week. Uh, and then, of course, the, the the bill, whatever bill ends up, you know, mm-hmm. or bills that end up coming out of the committee will then have to go to the floor. But did you see any shift? Did you see any movement at all? Did you see, um, you know, any you know now that the sides literally got to stand up and go, you know, toe to toe in a public forum? Did you see any movement at all, or anything that would suggest that? Um, you know that the the forces for school choice are are in the lead, or maybe maybe uh, the folks who want to block it uh, made some progress as well. No, I, w- I would honestly say I, I think we're still at a status quo ante from you know where where we were previously. But you know, like we've discussed before, I am you know very bullish on the the prospects of, of school choice. I, you know the the you know the question mark will be on the what, mm-hmm. but I am very bullish on the prospect of school choice happening. I will say one thing that I did appreciate, and uh, again, you know, public praise where due, is uh, Representative Harrison seemed to be doing a yeoman's job getting the individual, specifically the the folks who were testifying against these bills, mostly based on the, you know, fi- you know, the financial element or saying you know, the the horrible things that you mentioned, getting them on record, basically. He, he was doing a very good job for a guy who's not a lawyer. Was doing a very good mm-hmm. job of actually pulling out that one thread into the daylight and making sure it was established in that. And I think that there's a lot of folks who went home. Now, granted, this hearing went very late. I think it went to like 2.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of folks who are probably tired. But then, again, there's a lot of folks who really let the masks slip and really kind of gave voice to maybe the, the private thoughts that they probably shouldn't mm-hmm. have shared. Another, um, so that so just to wrap that up, um, you know, not sure on the timeline yet um, as of right now, uh, but again, they will have to vote something out of committee at some point in the next, uh, beginning probably of next week, um, and then of course that will shift to the floor and there will be, um, you know, more fireworks perhaps um, mm-hmm. on the floor uh, because this is, you know, the most important and certainly one of the most contentious issues uh, this session. Another uh, issue that is of, of probably just as high important particularly if you look at public opinion polls and had a hearing last night that went again deep 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 into the evening mm-hmm. uh, is that on border security bills right. um, and so that was in front of the committee uh, last night um, there were a number of different border security bills uh, the two that I want to highlight and get your uh, you know feedback on are the two that you know we've been talking about here um, one is is HB 20 which would create the border protection unit I mean this is a response uh, just give you a quick bumper sticker version this is a response to the fact that we just don't have enough resources at the border that are uh, that are enforcing the laws down there. It's not just people coming across, but then there's all kind of lawlessness that's going on as a result. And these communities are getting overrun and people are scared and, you know, the, the lands are getting trampled and all of that. And the federal government's not doing its job. And frankly, it doesn't isn't deploying enough resources. So this is an this is a this is a response by the state of Texas to say, we've got an emergency down there and we're going to do something. So that's HB 20. Uh, and then the other one is HB 1600, mm-hmm. which uh, which would create a state offense essentially for illegal immigration, which I guess I didn't know that that wasn't already a state offense. Um, but in making it a state offense, it obviously opens up new avenues for enforcement uh, for for folks, uh, for law enforcement here in uh, Texas. Uh, there were other bills that were debated last night. There were certainly some uh, theatrics and there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of crazy things that were said. Uh, but uh, what was your takeaway from that whole debate? Well, if, if anybody's listening who wants to go take a stand against these boards, 
border bills. I would say definitely do what happened yesterday. I think that was a great case study. One thing, when you want to get a legislator's attention, the best thing you can do is take that microphone, belittle them, yell at them. And, uh, so the know, witnesses were, or the t- people yeah. giving testimony were belittling the members? Yeah, I'm going to call, I'm, and just just so we're all clear, that's sarcasm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and, and we saw, like, I mean, again, I understand that this is a charged issue, and I understand that even reasonable people on both sides can, can disagree on, on, on some of the mechanism. But especially when we talked about, now you mentioned those two bills, there's another one that established a border coordinating council that, of course, again, the undifferentiated left-wing blob was, you know, rapidly against as well. But that was by, you know, that was getting bipartisan reception. You know, Representative Raymond, who, you know, who is not a uh, is not a Republican, um, well, you know, somebody got up there and I think it was a gentleman from uh, El Paso or El Paso City Council and basically just said, look, if you're for this bill, again, the coordinating council, if you're for the coordinating council, you're racist, you're xenophobic, <laughs> you're all that. And he just said, stop, stop. And then just started cutting back into him. He goes, look, this open border stuff is not working. Mm-hmm. And again, this is from a, you know, a, a seasoned Democrat. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we saw. And, and then again, just the, the interest groups that we've seen, you know, I didn't realize that there was a, an advocacy group for trans migrants, but there is, uh, took position on several of the bills. And, and that actually doesn't surprise me, but I mean, like I, how, well, how many dimensions till we get to like, we're just describing like one person though, you know? <laughs> And, and so it was one of these things where I thought it went very as typically as it could gone. Um, you know, Chairman Hunter really tr- tried to keep it moving because mm-hmm. I mean, especially because twenty didn't open up to like ten thirty mm-hmm. um, for public testimony, and even Mark Morgan, uh, you know, former head of the Border Patrol, was given two minutes, a couple of questions, and moved along. Good lord! Um, but I mean, that's but that's that shows. Look. You know, ha- being a, obviously being a subject matter expert, as, mm-hmm. as as Mr. Morgan certainly certainly is, and you know any Joe Schmo off the street, they're given equal forum. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even I'm not suggesting it shouldn't be the case, but it also means that when you ha- are there to discuss a serious topic, because the general body of witnesses is getting you know a very egalitarian treatment. You know, again, where we'll let somebody up there with nose rings and purple hair get the same time the immediate past head of the border patrol gets, you know, you don't get to go up there and again, belittle the members, yell at them and do the little theatrics Mm. and then turn around and wonder why nobody took what anything that you had to say uh, to heart. And so about those bills specifically, you know, we've discussed, I think it was two episodes ago about HB 20, you know, that's going to be the, uh, the, oh, I forget. Yeah. There was a tweet. There was a tweet by a certain member who's known for, um, I would say kind of, cartoonish theatrics mm. um, who said that this was the anti uh, Latinx uh, lynch mob bill mm-hmm. um, the vigilante was used a lot yeah, yesterday it, it, exactly, exactly. And of course they forget to mention that these uh, individuals need to have both training and law enforcement experience and, and, and things like that but mm-hmm. you know let's not let the facts get in the way of good story exactly um, and, and so you had like all these accusations come, and it, like it gets after you've watched for like an hour you get to the point where you're like, nobody in the opposition has done uh, any of the research. And even like some of the people that were for the bill or on the bill raised concerns with its implementation. That's what this is for. Sure. It is for discussing 
how the rubber is going to hit the road in this very serious that you mentioned earlier on. This has been the number one issue mm -hmm. as long as we've been doing polling here in the state, yeah. except for, what was it, March, April, and May of 2020? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, the, yeah. The, the um, since we've been doing polling at, at TBPF regularly, um, and this is going to get to my two major points on this, is that, number one, this has been the number one issue for all Texans, not for Republicans, you know, not for conservatives, not for, you know, one particular group, but for all Texans, including Democrats and independents, uh, ever since we've been doing polling on this issue, going back three or four years, um, except for a couple months during right at the pandemic. And so, you know, the legislature is stepping up. I give them a ton of credit for stepping into this because mm -hmm. this is this is a difficult issue. There are a lot of constitutional Absolutely. issues because obviously immigration is predominantly a foreign or a, uh, a national uh, federal uh, priority. Mm -hmm. So that's what I say about the second thing is, but that doesn't mean that Texas doesn't have authority to right. protect its communities, even if mm -hmm. it is coming yeah. from illegal um, um, yeah. people, illegal aliens and others who are coming across illegally. Yes, that is a federal priority or that is a federal uh, responsibility, but we don't just have to stand back right. and let them take over our community. Well, you mentioned you also mentioned the the crime for illegal entry. The, so the 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 hole that that patches is right now what they're essentially doing down at the border through Operation Lone Star or just you know local law enforcement generally is they're using criminal trespass as the is the analog offense because mm -hmm. obviously you know if you are here uh, in the country illegally and you're you're going across you know if you look at the border it's mostly you know farms and ranches you know all on the one side of the uh, the river outside of some very uh, specific places and those places usually have fences or walls um, then you are criminally trespassing and you know this is where we see all the damage and destruction that happens to these properties down there mm -hmm. this would actually make the presence a crime so in other words if somebody did uh, you know, or was arrested not necessarily at, you know, while trespassing or on the property. Because remember, there's a lot of, you know, you got to patrol private property with public resources, and that creates a whole other, sure. uh, a whole other issue. So this gives an analog for that as well. Now, will this get challenged? It, it may, it may, but I think that, you know, what we're going to see out of the the Biden administration, especially with uh, this particular secretary who I, I doubt even knows that borders part of his uh, particular portfolio, is that, look, if you are deliberately choosing not to enforce so much of this or to have anything um, to do with any sort of the lawlessness down there, then you're going to have to see states uh, basically innovating like this. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, this is only probably the first uh, the first barrage of that. Taking matters into their own hands. And so um, I want to get to, we, you know, there's been some movement on mm -hmm. property tax. So I want to get there a little bit. Um, but anything else, I mean, there's a ton that happened. I mean, there was, you know, a lot of stuff that we like to focus on. There was, you know, stuff on the energy grid. There was taxpayer-funded lobbying mm -hmm. uh, that passed through the Senate. There was uh, grid reform. Uh, there was foster care reform, like really important mm -hmm foster care reform uh, that was passed. Anything sort of under the radar there? Anything that should be more on the radar that, that uh, you, may, you want to make sure we highlight? Well, I mean, well, I, I, can't really, I can't really say it's under the radar because they actually did a press conference on it today. Um, but it kind of caught everyone's surprise because the lieutenant governor posted yesterday that there will be a press conference today, Thursday, mm -hmm. at 1030. And everyone's like, oh, here it is. tax. Here yeah, it comes. Goes, <laughs> another broadside at the house incoming or, right. or, or him announcing that, okay, well, you know, I know we said, uh, you know, 16 billion. Well, it's 20 billion now or something yeah. like that. You know, that's what everybody was expecting. Everyone was really surprised when he came out and talked about earmarking $3.2 billion uh, towards, um, 
basically state mental health services. Mm. Now, we've talked about mental health in a lot of capacities, but one thing that people don't understand, and this is actually a very serious issue because it bleeds over into well, obviously healthcare, but really cogently into criminal justice as well, is kind of our, our bed capacity in our state hospitals. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, I can speak knowledgeably about Ash, uh, Austin State Hospital, um, where its competency restoration backlog is just absolutely immense. And so this is basically, I mean, you know, you know as well as me because you are out here on the streets, uh, you know, walking to and from your car. You know, we are not doing a great job with individuals and their mental health needs. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we can all say, especially when those tend to be uh, supplemented by uh, substance abuse. And so if somebody was arrested for trespass, jaywalking or whatever, and the defense counsel goes, I'm not sure this guy is competent to stand trial. That starts this whole rigmarole. They put them in the uh, institution to basically restore their competency and Mm -hmm. able to do that. The thing is, if that backlog's so big, they just back out onto the streets. So then, and, is the idea then with this announcement today that they're putting a ton more resources into, you know, that some of that, of course, would would go to to um, uh, loosening that backlog or or just providing more resources not, for mental health? In not general? directly, no. Like it, it's it's not. I, it will, yes, mm-hmm. definitely, but it's not targeted specifically for that. But it will again, kind of bolster. Some of the people are, are some of the the capacity for dealing with some of our more chronic and forensic populations. Mm-hmm. And this will be one of the things where, again, the Senate, you know, people look at the Senate and say, oh, well, looks like you're just spending, you know, that seems like a, a liberal cause. And I don't understand why uh, the lieutenant governor and he was there with uh, Chairwoman Kolkhorst. Um, you know, again, nobody's idea of <laughs> of a of a squishy Republican by any means. Sure. And say, I don't understand why they're out there trying to spend all this money. I got to tell you, this this overflow cuts into our hosp- our actual hospital capacity. The hospitals you and I go to mm-hmm. cuts into the prison system. So we're definitely paying for uh, these folks in a way that is not going to remediate whatever their problems might be. Or should they actually get into the state hospital? Again, it just ter- becomes that black hole mm-hmm. where, you know, getting escape velocity to actually be able to have your competency restored in some of these cases. You know, again, it just these massive resource sucks. And what this is trying to do is basically bolster that whole process mm-hmm. to get people through onto recovery, whatever the case might be, because the current situation is just not tenable. Well, um, it's a good segue into an issue that's, that's not necessarily talking about the, the legislature, but it is talking about public safety, uh, which was uh, which wanted to highlight uh, this week just because it was, you know, number one, it was a huge success, but number two, the, the pushback was was very strange, was that uh, the DPS, and you'll have to take us through some more of the yeah. details of this issue, you know it way better than I do, but but the idea is that the D, that the uh, Department of Public Safety would take over a lot, or at least give, give the Austin Public Depart- or Police Department um, a lot more support because mm-hmm. things are getting bad here in Austin. Uh, and so DPS stepped in, provided some more resources as a result of, and depending on how you look at this issue, you know, was it the, the defunding the cops that happened the last mm-hmm. couple of years? Is it just that, you know, the, the Austin in, in general is deteriorating in terms of public safety? But DP, DPS stepped in and had some fantastic results. Yeah, and, and so, you know, and it, this is the tough part where it comes to apportioning blame for for the current situation uh, that, that Austin is seeing. And I, and I will say, Hey, some of that, like some of that competency and forensic backlogs, those are, you know, that's not, that's not insignificant in there, but like, is it more than 15% of the overall problem? I'd, I'd be hard pressed to say it's more than that. But one thing that we saw, so obviously we saw the, 
um, the, def- the whole defund movement here, just like we saw it everywhere else. And, and to be honest with you, the pushback that engendered here so much, they ended up spending more on law enforcement than they ended up the year prior. Now, the problem was they, they cut academy classes, which then again, you got to understand, you know, people are, you know, people join a career, they age in that career, and then they retire from it. Mm-hmm. And if you cut out a whole chunk at the beginning, that is going to have that that gap is going to persist for the next 20 years at that mm-hmm. level. You know, we can put in a lot of people with less experience. You can't really put in people with more unless you're hiring from other departments. But that black hole within the, you know, you ever see those age demographic trees they use for the census? Think of that with just an empty space. And mm-hmm. that's what we have for those academy classes. Right. There's that. There's, uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. There is a, all, for all but one member, there is a hostile city council towards the police. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, we do see... The, the current administration under Mayor uh, under Mayor Watson is a little bit better uh, than it was under Mayor Adler, and that's damning with faint praise. Mm-hmm. Um, but it tends to just be this this idea that you know this thought that the police can't be all things to all people. Look, I, I you know this is my academic uh, area of study. I completely agree with that. But the one thing they need to be do uh, they need to be doing, and the one thing they need support in doing, is making sure they they enforce the law mm-hmm. you know the getting cats out of trees stuff got plenty of time for that other time but like you know this idea that they need to just be you know mental health workers as the first resort never works you need somebody with a gun and so what they did here is they've been really supplementing the patrol specifically some of the violent crime investigations uh and some of the i would say some of the road patrol as well mm-hmm. And I just, I, you know, we were going over some of the stats beforehand. You know, we're talking about hundreds of pounds of meth. Taken off the street in the last three years, yeah, uh, three two, weeks. Yeah. 200 arrests, uh, a guns. great deal, which were felonies, yeah. gun, hundreds of guns. You know, these are things where it's like, if I knew that that was the delta that was going unaddressed by current resourcing uh, current resourcing issues, I'd be the first down at City Hall going, let's double the police budget. Right. You know, because this is, this if this is the crime that's going unaddressed then this is the you know this is like again you never know how much crime is not being detected but if this is a natural experiment in that detection then i think these are alarms these results are shocking but also gives you know gives credence to the actual uh, decision by the governor to allow dps to supplement ap well and for me i just thought it was shocking that there were some voices that came out from the city council and other places um you know as as the dps is putting out saying look these are the results of the last three weeks and as you're saying look most people would look at that and say oh my gosh you know that's that's hundreds of pounds of can we have some more troopers please yeah. yeah can we get some more can we get more people instead the the response from some folks in some corners was oh this is just uh, cops being you know targeting black and brown communities again mm-hmm. or this is just cops going back to the you know being the uh, you know the way that they were before we had you know the the big reckoning w- when it comes to law enforcement and mm-hmm. all that when i'm looking at this thinking no this is guns off the street these are criminals that are behind bars and yes some of it was track traffic enforcement but if you've been, been on the highways around austin recently we need a little bit more traffic enforcement uh, um, you know, the drunk drivers and so on and so forth. The Mopac I mean, Autobahn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, this is a town where people like to go out and have a few beers, and sometimes they have a few more than they should, and they end up driving home. And that, you know, that can literally, and it does all the time, kill people. Um, okay. And so, you know, the fact that that um, that they've stu- that DPS did this effort, you know, they uh, for me, I think they should be revered. I think it sends the message that yeah. we do need to be investing more uh, into these resources and not the other way around, um, which is just, you know, it's a little shocking to me that people can look at that and, and get the completely 
wrong perspective on it. And I just got to underline what you said. About, I remember, again, another member of the undifferentiated left-wing blob saying that the, commu- the communities will reject this occupation. <laughs> I have not seen any uh, not seen any evidence of that in much to the country. No, absolutely not. Okay, so switching gears one more time. So I did want to go uh, in depth. So that's, we've talked a lot about things that have already happened or things yes. that are kind of happening now. Um, but one of the issues um, that is getting a lot of attention right now because it's going through uh, one of the committees, one of the Senate committees, is this issue of tenure at, mm. at universities. Um, and while it may not necessarily be the sexiest issue, it's not property tax, it's not uh, school choice, I think, me, I think personally, there's just me talking here. I think that colleges and universities, you know, with, with the success that the parent empowerment movement is having across the country at the K through 12 level, which is parents demanding that, you know, this service be provided and that it be a, you know, genuine service and that they have, you know, control over, over where their education dollars go and they expect, you know, that the education that their kids are getting be quality. That to me easily extends quickly up through higher education. Mm-hmm. And one of the issues that, that people are having is this idea of tenure. Mm-hmm. Which is um, essentially, you know, a, a guaranteed employment uh, for as long as you're there at the university. Um, and the two sides on this are—it's very strange. You know, obviously on on one side, you know, I, we would look at this and say, well, if you're guaranteeing employment, you know, what are you doing to ensure and right. evaluate that 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 the professor is continuing to provide a quality service, you know, for his uh, for his students? Like, what are the accountability measures that are taken? And if you actually look at the accountability measures that they discuss. Us, you know, it happens basically rubber stamps, especially at universities uh, here in Texas, public universities here in Texas. They rubber stamp these jobs every six years or so. There's not really any accountability. There's been instances when there clearly should have been accountability, when a when a, when a professor should have gotten fired, instead they just got demoted. You know, and they're still teaching classes. So it is a problem. Tenure is a problem in the fact that you know people are expecting to get you know lifetime employment. Mm-hmm. I also mm-hmm. just don't understand the argument. I mean, t- you're the academic. You're like you take me through this. Apparently, being a college professor is the only industry in the entire world in which if you don't have guaranteed employment, suddenly your right to free speech is infringed. Mm-hmm. You no longer have a constitutional right to free speech. That's what we hear, that if you don't give professors tenure, mm-hmm. then they won't be able to make, you know, to be able to teach uh, kids the way that they want to teach them or teach them subject matters or, you know, teach them certain lessons uh, the way that they want to mm-hmm. teach them, um, which is all very strange to me. It's right. all very strange because that would suggest a couple of things. Number one, that the rest of us who are all at-will employees um, are constantly having our constitutional rights violated all the time for spe- for free speech. We say on our podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, as we say on our, on our podcast. Um, which which is very strange to me. I mean, obviously that's not the case, and people don't just lose all of their free speech constitutional rights just because they get employment somewhere. There are obviously things you can't say in the context of your employment because it's not appropriate, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't that's not a free speech violation. Right. Um, and the second thing is, is that the only way to guarantee uh, their freedom of speech uh, is to is is you know is guaranteed employment, uh, which is which is all very strange. You've worked in that world. You've mm-hmm. been around it. Uh, is this a real concern, or is this just basically you know them saying we don't ever want to get fired for anything we ever do, and so that's why we need tenure? Well, uh, allow me to start by recapitulating the entire defense of tenure as it was given in that in that uh, particular uh, hearing. It is if you get rid of this, 
then we will no longer have academic freedom and our, you know, especially if we're researching, you know, the, the intersection of, of, of race and crime or something, we can get, you know, we can just be summarily fired. That's, that is the entirety of the defense of tenure. And it's also based on sort of, sort of a, I would say, a fictitious understanding of what tenure was because again we're putting we're looking at tenure you and me are looking at it in the current in the modern university in universities past it was not only a sign of uh prestige it, it basically was a way of now it, did it, it did it redound to the kind of job protections that we're talking about it was never as ironclad as has been uh you know, negotiated in some of our universities today, that's for absolute sure. Mm -hmm. But it was also kind of a, a status marker on, you know, your body of scholarship has reached a certain level. Therefore, you are no longer an assistant or associate professor. You are a full professor. You're just professor, right? right. And so, you know, not only would you get more lean leeway and leniency in what you got to uh, research and, and, and publish on, but it was more that you had that background too and now it's an exercise in bean counting and i mean that seriously is that most universities and this is not exclusive to texas by any means but most universities you go okay that universe oh that that department's pretty tough that's like a 10 paper department that would mean that you would have to have 10 uh papers uh you published. know yeah published yeah. in a in a journal of a certain level of repute in order to make that and then you can say, oh, that's more of a teaching school. That's probably like a three. Um, that's probably like a three, um, three paper. And then if you even look at like my CV, you know, I had I, I have a CV right now with peer-reviewed publications that you know are definitely beyond mo most of these teaching schools. And I haven't been in the academic game for you know a decade. Mm -hmm. And so that's what it was supposed to be. Now what it's come into is it creates sinecures. And a sinecure, you know, as you know, is just a job that you basically don't have to do any work for. Right. And what I mean that is that some tenure, not, and not and I, again, this is not all tenured faculty, but some tenured faculty will then, once they actually have that, will then reduce their load to the bare minimum of, of teaching and research if they're still researching or contributing uh, to the body scholarship at all and then just kind of again co you know just kind of coast until they till they hit retirement right or or or, or, or you know or sometimes so they don't retire so that's when i jump so, into it because yeah. that's to me that's where i think we're going to get um uh, right. people motivated to do right. something about this because that speaks directly to the quality of the education that parents and students yeah. are paying for and and you know i, I don't want to be too cynical about this but you also know i'm sure you've heard that you know uh you know the the advancement of research happens one obituary at a time. This is what we're this is what we're talking about here is that you essentially get somebody who, you know, they, they become ensconced in this particular area. And since everybody growing up in order to get their paper cited, needed to cite Professor X, not the X-Men guy, but, you know, just like whatever professor it might be. And so now you have Professor Y and Z, whose predominant body of work is the same as Professor X, and they have to cite all that stuff. And right. again, it's a, it's this very slow iterative process that actually pushes against academic rigor and discovery. And so it's one of these things where it perverts every single incentive that these uh, that these institutions are supposed to have. Right. They should be they should be bold in what it is they seek to look at. They should be you know, taking tough questions and looking at them. The idea that, 
this would cancel someone's speech rights or any of that. That is complete nonsense. Because first of all, the people that are making this argument, now look, if you have somebody that's a hardcore conservative in the university saying, I'm worried about losing my job, I'd have time for that. <laughs> but, you know, universities, I think we can safely say, are not known as, you know, these these right-wing bastions of uh, populism where the minute somebody says something that's in the vein of a left-wing orthodoxy, then they get the ax. That just doesn't happen. Right, it's the people that are complaining about it are the people that are probably the safest in terms of their political ide- right. ideology. Um, but you said something I wanted to highlight is that mm-hmm. the, the point of universities is supposed to be academic rigor, discovery, exploration, yeah. and learning. And this, this uh, and tenure, at least to how it's practiced mm-hmm. today, like you said, pushes directly against that. And I think that's the part where, you know, outside of, you know, this academic discussion of of tenure or free speech or even uh, recruitment they Mm -hmm. talk about all the time is, is, you know, at the, the, you know, um, street level, Parents want to know, am I getting a good investment? Is this a good investment? Is my child going to go off and we're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars or however much it is um, you know, to educate my child? And then are they going to be getting that experience? It's not just the are they going to be learning things that are in the book that they're reading, but are they getting the experience mm-hmm. of discovery and academic right. rigor and, yeah. and exploration and real learning and then being in an, in an environment where you can have your own opinions or form your own ideas about things and then be able to bounce that off other people who disagree with you and, and, and have that experience. Absolutely. Instead, that's not what's going on, and tenure is a piece of the reason why uh, it has changed. And not all, I, I'm going to add on to that. I'm going to say, you know, we we make no uh, bones about it here. You know, college is not for everyone. You know, your usual is, is education after K-12 for everyone, largely in in some way, shape, or form. But that could be a trade. It could be a community college. It could be. A lot, your a lot of people whatever. go pro right after right after high school. Oh, pro academics. No. <laughs> but no, I get exactly what you're saying. The thing is is the accessibility of college or or i should say the accessibility because college is very accessible these days but the fact that we're all channeling these um that these kids into this that becomes this cookie cutter system again it just it just it's a reinvigoration of our same arguments that we have against kind of the institutional inertia or dare i say the lack thereof Mm -hmm. that we see in the k-12 system again we're making this cookie cutter mold that everyone needs to come here and needs to take general you know x y and z general electives you know you can major in underwater basket weaving chemistry criminology whatever the case Mm -hmm. might be and you get a substantive area there but again it's it's still forming this cookie cutter system and again going to the professors that teach now luckily i you know i had a great faculty at the university of cincinnati and they were i mean it was also because they fought with each other a lot Hmm. but we were really which is good yeah and as as graduate students we were basically you know given complete leave to like you know find the one who you gel with the best and see if they want to be your dissertation advisor and they can tell you to pound sand mm. or you can demonstrate some sort of value add where they'll provide, you know, provide this, uh, this service for you. And that was really, that takes it from the, the mechanization, the, the mechanical, uh, go, you know, going about the business of a department in academia and really puts it on the student. And mm. we had a, we had a lot of things, you know, I don't need to go into all the, you know, the different, uh, separating wheat from chaff points that we had in, in graduate school, but we basically, it was taken, it was put on, the onus was on us 
to basically find the professor that we think we can create a body of scholarship with and to work it out from there. Because no professor at the University of Cincinnati, which was, I think, third at the time when I was there, you know, needed and they didn't need anything from us. You know, I mean, they have plenty of free labor in terms of uh, other graduate students or undergraduate <laughs> students. But we had to present a value add. Mm -hmm. And that is what really triggered kind of the the learning renaissance, renaissance and really mm -hmm. understanding how this particular element of criminology or that element of criminology, or in my case, statistics, really got the ball rolling when it came to advancing the scholarship. And whether or not a professor had yes. tenure didn't play into that at all. No, no. In fact, um, in fact, I know several cases of folks who were uh, in cohorts ahead of mine specifically, where some of the luminaries who were the field leading people uh, when I, you know, that when I was there were just, you know, third, second, third year out of grad school, you mm -hmm. know, they, you know, baby docs, as we'd call them. And uh, yeah, they <laughs> would they would partner up. And then from that partnership of the grad student and someone who was maybe a professor for only two years, they would actually create such a substantive body of scholarship that from that an actual body of theory mm -hmm. could arise. And that's and that's beautiful to see. And none of that happened with any protections of tenure. And look, I can talk on the grad student side, any protections that that grad student's going to be funding either, funded either. All right. Well, we've kind of come to a close. We're kind of running out of time, but we will keep an, an eye definitely on that issue. It's really just starting to bubble up, mostly in the Senate. We'll see what happens over in the House um, to see if they take on the, the tenure issue as well. Um, but but that is that is it for our time today so we appreciate you as always thank you for listening thank you for watching and as we always like to say at the end of these episodes do good and risk the consequences we'll see you next time